And you know, it's like we've been sold this idea that drugs are a gateway to other drugs, right? And it's just, there's no such thing as gateway drugs, there's gateway pain, right? And, you know, I didn't become dependent upon Adderall and opiates because I smoked marijuana in high school. That's an insult to what matters most in life. It's an insult to love and connection. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Prescription Podcast. This podcast is all about helping you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. We will be featuring conversations with great minds to inspire you to reach your ultimate potential. My name is Muzammil Ahmed. I'm a medical student with a master's in psychology, certification in nutrition, and a bachelor's in business. And my name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student with a Bachelor of Science in Health and Fitness Physiology, and I'm also a plant-fueled Muay Thai fighter. We are both plant-based lifestyle advocates who are passionate about spreading positivity, optimizing health, and promoting sustainability. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We have an amazing guest with us today, Adam Sud, and he has an incredible story to share with you all. Adam Sud once weighed nearly 350 pounds and his life was in a serious downward spiral. He was addicted to drugs and food, he was depressed, and he had multiple chronic illnesses, including type 2 diabetes. After attempting suicide by drug overdose, he realized he needed to ask for help. He adopted a plant-based diet, and this was the beginning of his recovery. After losing nearly 200 pounds and getting off all of his medications, today Adam leads a life dedicated to inspiring and helping others. He's a diabetes and food coach and speaks internationally about plant-based diets and addiction recovery. Adam founded the nonprofit organization Plant-Based for Positive Change, and he is helping conduct the very first research study investigating the effects of using nutrition in addiction recovery and relapse prevention. This conversation is more than just addiction and weight loss. At the heart of it, Adam delivers a powerful message on the power of self-love as being at the root of recovery. We do want to provide a warning, though, that this conversation may be triggering for some. It contains mature subject content. And we cannot emphasize enough that if you are struggling with an addiction, please don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help. Similarly, if you know someone who might be struggling, let them know you love and accept them and will support and help in any way that you can. We hope you all enjoy Adam's story as much as we did. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, we will love it if you could share it with your friends and family and on your social media to raise awareness and to help us spread the word. Hey guys, we have Adam here. Welcome Adam to our podcast. We're super excited to have you. I learned about your journey over a year ago and kind of uh, got in touch with you on Instagram not too long after that. And since then we have been Instagram friends. So it's really cool to be chatting with you now for this episode. Could you please just uh, briefly introduce yourself before we get into your story? Yeah, I'm excited to do this too. Uh, it was great when we started to to chat on Instagram and share content and stuff like that. Um, my name is Adam Sud. I am uh, the founder of the nonprofit Plant Based for Positive Change. We are a nonprofit that is running the first randomized controlled trial investigating the effects of plant based nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. Um, I'm also a diabetes and food addiction coach with my good friends Robbie and Cyrus at Mastering Diabetes. And I work as a speaker and health coach for uh, Rip Esselstyn's program, Engine 2, and which is now called Plant Strong. Um, and uh, I live in Austin, Texas, and I am uh, happy to be here. Yeah, you're doing a lot of amazing things. Uh, it's uh, it's you, fun. Yeah. Uh, we actually had Robbie and Cyrus not too long ago. So, oh, great. Uh, yeah, they're amazing people. Could you start off with just your childhood, like how you were raised, where you were raised, and things like that? Yeah, um, so I'm a seventh generation Texan. I, I was born in Houston. It's actually seventh generation Houstonian. 
Um, and uh, my family is one of the first Jewish families to, to settle in Texas. So I grew up a Texas Jew, which is not the best dietary combination you can think of. Um, basically burgers and barbecue and bagels and blintzes. And, <laughs> and, you know, aside from the fact that I had an amazing, you know, amazingly supportive parents um, and I grew up in a very, uh, I grew up in a privileged situation where I was, I was able to go outside and play sports every day with my friends, ride my bike to school with my friends. My dad taught me how to play baseball and basketball and football. And um, I, I was really in a very fortunate situation. Um, but at the same time, uh, there were some things that had real impacts on my self-worth and my relationship to myself. And it started when I was really young. I mean, I understand my, my dad lost his father to colon cancer before I was even born. And so my dad has this, uh, you know, trauma of losing people that he loves to, to preventable conditions. Um, <coughs> his mother, my grandmother would end up uh, dying early from a, um, and unfortunately she, she had a fall, but before that she survived heart attack, or she survived a heart attack, she survived cancer. Um, my dad's sister would later die from complications to diabetes. So my dad has this you know, family history of, of losing people that he really cares about. And so even from a young age, you know, I knew, I didn't know this, but that was part of his, uh, his way of like interacting with people was if I love them, I have to do whatever I can to keep them safe from being sick. And I can remember being like 10 years old and I was in my parents' bedroom with them. And as a kid in Texas and in the summer, you rarely wear a shirt. You just sort of, you know, run all over the place, get, you know, slip and slides, run in the pool, all that stuff. And my mom and dad, for the first time ever, they just, they said, wow, you have love handles. And I didn't know what the heck that was. And so I was like, what do you know, what is that? And they explained to me, they said, you know, you shouldn't have those already. And that was the first time because up until then, I had not been told that there are conditions to which I can accept myself that there were conditions to which I am either lovable or acceptable. And in a span of 10 seconds, I went from being completely accepting and loving and, and, uh, and non-judgmental of myself to looking at every aspect of myself to being what, what is now acceptable by my parents, what is now lovable to my parents. And from that point on, I was very aware of how people were looking at me I was constantly aware of myself. I would, you know, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I didn't know what, I didn't know what love handles were. I didn't know where they, how, how I got them. I wasn't feeding myself at 10 years old. So it couldn't have been my fault. I just didn't understand. And so I started for the first time to be like, there must be something wrong with me for this to happen. And this is a bad thing because my parents don't want it. And I don't want my parents not to want me. And there was junk food in the house. I mean, I grew up in the eighties. So of course there was. And I, for me, apparently it was, it was an issue because of this. My parents would constantly criticize me. You know, my dad would make comments moment on the lips forever on the hips. My dad would say, you know, are you really going to have another one of those? And I just couldn't get it. I didn't understand why for me, I wasn't allowed to do these things. Everyone else was. And then why I couldn't stop myself from doing this. And so I started closet eating at a very young age. I would hide in my bedroom in the dark and eat as fast as I could because I didn't want to be discovered. I didn't want my parents to see the real me because the real me was unacceptable to them. And when you're 10 years old, your, your parents are the world to you. 
and therefore being unacceptable to your parents means you're unacceptable to the world. And at the same time, I was taken to a doctor and I was diagnosed with ADHD and I was prescribed Ritalin. And so this was just further confirmation. I have another person of authority, someone whose opinion my parents respected, telling me that, well, not only is your weight a broken part of you, this is not what he was saying, but this is my understanding of it, but there's something else about you that's broken, that the world doesn't want to see, doesn't want, to, doesn't want you to have, doesn't want to be a part of. And so in order to be a part of the world and be acceptable, you have to fix that broken part in you and you're going to do that with this medicine. And from that point on, I was constantly already in the state of like, what's wrong? How do I fix it? What's wrong with me? How do I fix it? Now there's more. And so I was always on high alert, waiting and watching people's reaction to me as an indication of what else now needs to be fixed. And the, the medication was the first time that I had learned that outside substances were an opportunity to fix broken parts of myself. And we moved to Austin, Texas, right before I started high school. And I, I, was, I was okay through middle school. I obviously had self-image issues, but I moved to Austin right before starting high school, so I didn't know anybody. I had no friends anymore. And I was late to start puberty, so I was an awkward kid as a freshman. I mean, most freshmen are awkward anyways, but I was, I was the awkward group of the awkward people. And, um, you know, my prescription for Ritalin had been changed to Adderall at the time. And well, I didn't have any friends as soon as people knew that I had Adderall. And Adderall is, for those listeners who don't know, it's simply another stimulant-based medication used to treat ADHD and narcolepsy. I don't have narcolepsy, but I'm just talking about the medication. Um, it is a combination of amphetamine and dextroamphetamine. It's literally medically pure meth for, as an extreme reference. But that's basically what the stuff is. That's why it works so well. And as soon as kids found out that I had this medication all of a sudden I started getting invited to parties. People started to want me around. And I saw this as an opportunity to be of value to other people. Because when you're valued by other people, you don't feel lonely anymore. You, people want you around, they want what you have to offer to the world. And so I saw this as an in. And so when someone asked me to bring Adderall to a party, heck yes, let's do this. Let this be my vehicle to friendship, to connection, to what I thought was belonging. And the, I didn't know that Adderall could be used as a recreational drug at the time, but when I found out that that's why everyone wanted it and I used it as a recreational drug, boom. I mean, immediately made me the person I thought everyone wanted me to be. It was like, and it wasn't the substance I was attached to. It was to this experience that it gave me of finally feeling what it's like to be the person I was meant to be. Like, Every problem had just been answered over like the span of five seconds, like a magic wand had been waved and everything I'd been searching for to fix every broken part of myself had just been fixed. It was the greatest solution I had ever discovered. And it was so easy. All I had to do was swallow a freaking pill. It was unbelievable. And it gave me an amazing amount of confidence. So I was talking to people and when I'm on Adderall, everything is interesting. So no matter what you're talking about, I, I want to talk about it. I want to listen to you. I want to be engaged with you, whether it's, whether it's something I'm really interested in or not. So I can feign this sort of false, you know, interest in your life. Um, I was a little bit overweight as a freshman and Adderall is an amphetamine. So not only is my metabolism going through the roof, but I also don't want to eat. So weight loss became a, a, an incredibly simple thing to achieve. And my relationship with my dad was struggling at the time because 
I had really poor study habits. My work ethic in school was pretty miserable. And so I could create this false persona of the good student when I was on a lot of Adderall. And I was, my dad is very much a type A personality. So I had this idea like, oh, if I use a lot of Adderall when I'm around him, then I'm more like him and then he'll want to be around me more. Not that he didn't want to be around me. This was just my own false beliefs of what I thought he needed in order for me to be loved by him. And I thought Adderall was gonna be my, again, a vehicle to do that. It was like every meaningful bond that had been severed was reconnected through this medication, but it was fake. It wasn't real. And it really worked for me in high school though. I lost the weight. I had friends, I had girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. Um, every single time I used, it made me feel like this is exactly the right thing. This is the best thing you've ever done for yourself. And so doing more has to be even better. And in college, things got really out of control because it seemed like overnight, more became not enough. And not enough became a constant concern of how much do I have left? How long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where will I get the money to buy it? And I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't handle being in college and having these concerns all the time. And I knew how to solve one problem. And that one problem was I knew if I moved back to Austin, dropped out of college, that I could scam doctors and I, could, I knew the dealers that I could buy from. And having Adderall was more important to me at the time than college. It was like, let me give myself a year to really get this back under control because this stuff works. I know it does. You can't tell me it doesn't because you weren't in my situation when everything was fixed in a matter of 10 seconds. And it worked for four years. It has to be able to work again. So I dropped out of college. I came home. I started doctor shopping. It's where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medications without them knowing about it, which is a felony. I was forging prescriptions, which is another felony. I was buying and selling drugs on the street, stealing from people, scamming anybody. I would do anything to anyone to get what I needed so that I could get my drugs. I didn't care what happened to you. It was just like, I stopped being with people. I started using them. I treated my family like absolute garbage. And I started to isolate more and more over the course of time because it just seemed like I didn't really wanna be a part of the world. I just wanted to be with my drugs. Right? Because my drugs were allowing me to feel like I was, I had things under control, right? The world was wrong, but I was right as long as I was on drugs. So the world was like, you know, F you to the world. I'm going to go be with me and my, and, and, and I'm going to be high all the time. And I was using so much that even though I was getting three prescriptions a month from multiple doctors and buying on the streets, I would run out really quickly. And I found fast food to be an amazing substitute for those that six to seven days, sometimes two weeks when I couldn't get any drugs. And I would get up every single morning. I would go to a place called Torchy's Tacos and I would get four potato, egg and cheese breakfast tacos. Then I'd go to McDonald's and get two supersized double quarter pounder meals, then go to Whataburger and get an extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal. For dinner, I'd get an extra large pizza from Papa John's with beef on top and a side of the chicken strips. Then at about three in the morning, I go back to Whataburger for three of their breakfast on a bun sandwiches with sausage. I drink about 15 sodas a day. And when it came to my substance abuse, the average prescription for Adderall is about 10 milligrams a day. On average, I was doing 450 milligrams in a 24 hour period. And there were days when I would do upwards of a thousand. I would do this for six days straight. I wouldn't sleep. 
I would end up in a drug-induced psychosis, where in order for me to finally get myself to go to sleep and stop this cycle of continually keeping myself awake, I would pop opiates so that I could knock myself out and just sleep it off and then get up and the whole process would start again. And it was, it was this incredibly destructive, really heartbreaking cycle of hating how I acted in order to get drugs, but needing drugs in order to do life. And then feeling horrible that I did those things. And then that making me hate myself even more, which made me need more drugs. And then the whole cycle started over and over again. And I was so aware that my life was going downhill. I was so aware that I had like passed a point of no return. But the idea of giving up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be was more terrifying than accepting the reality that I was going to die from this. It was, it's, it's hard to put into words the feeling of being in that state where it's like, oh man, I know it. Like, this is not going to end well for me. But drugs are everything. Like, because of what they do for me. It wasn't, it, it, it didn't matter if it was Adderall, it didn't matter if it was opiates, it didn't matter if it was sex or gambling or whatever it was. Whatever behavior that could allow me to escape, being in that state of pain, I had to have it. And if my life ended sooner, fine, so be it, which is horrible. I mean, I'm the kind of person that would say things like, and you know, one of my good friends who unfortunately recently passed away, David Clark, used to say the same thing. When we were living our life like this, eh, if it cost me five years, fuck it. Five years? That's like, as he says, that's a shit bargain. Like I look at it now, it's like, oh my God, those... I would have lost more, so much more than five years. It would have been the worst thing ever. And at that time, my dad came to me. And my dad's uh, part of the founding of Whole Foods Market. And at the time, Whole Foods just partnered with Rip Esselstyn and created this Engine 2 retreat. And he's offered me the opportunity to attend a seven-day retreat with Rip and his dad. And Dr. Clapper was there, Jeff Novick, um, Doug Lyle. Like, um, uh, unbelievable. And I'll tell you guys right now, like, I didn't... I didn't know who Rip Esselstyn was. I hadn't even seen Forks Over Knives. I didn't give a shit what he had to say. I didn't want to know anything about it. The only thing I wanted to do was I wanted to keep getting money from my dad. And that's why I said yes. Why did your dad ask you to go there? My dad was always very, he was always very present in his, in, in trying to offer me solutions when it came to my physical health. Um, and so he would always, but it's interesting is at the time, I always saw it as a judgment, like I wasn't acceptable unless I was healthy. I didn't know that what he was really wanting to do was say, I'm scared of losing you. And that was just my misunderstanding of how he chose to show his love for me. I know that now, but at the time I was very offended every time he talked to me about my health because I couldn't help but recognize how far I had fallen. And then I became defensive. My ego got into that whole fuck you mentality. And so... I said, yes, I went, I was high every single day. And even though I was high all the time, I went to every single lecture and I listened to everything that was being said. And I learned about how you can reverse chronic Western disease with a plant-based diet. You can lose weight with a plant-based diet. You can do all these things, really own your health and well-being. And that was, that was great and everything. But what really st- stuck to me was there was a guy there named John Pierre 
John Pierre is a personal trainer. He's a vegan personal trainer. He, he's trained Ellen. He's trained Sean Munson, the director of Earthlings. And within 24 hours, he like attached himself to me because he saw, and for the first time ever, I had somebody who wanted to see me as a human and not my problems. He wasn't there trying to fix me or anything like that. He had these, we had these amazingly heartfelt conversations about everything. And he had a copy of Earthlings. And he said, hey, you know, whether you accept this health stuff or not, that's fine. That's you, you know, but why don't you watch this movie tonight on your laptop? And I did. And it wrecked me. And um, I came back. Just for people who don't know what Earthling is. Yeah. So Earthlings is a film that's directed by uh, a man named Sean Munson. It's narrated by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, And it is a exploration of the way animals, every single animal is exploited across all industries by humans, food, entertainment, clothing, makeup, all of it. And it's done in a really interesting and beautiful poetic structure to where while walking Phoenix is explaining everything that goes on, he's speaking to like the interconnectedness of life and humanity and non-human animals in a, in a very sort of non-judgmental way but more of like a revealing way that this is this is wrong because whether it from a practical standpoint whether you can make the statement that it's good or bad that we do these things it's always going to feel wrong because inherently it's evil and i had this unbelievably profound experience i couldn't finish the film i I still have never watched it all the way through and i wish i could tell you guys that hearing the message of health and watching earthlings was enough for me to stop doing everything I was doing, right? That I did the seven days and boom. It's just not true. Um, My life would get worse over the next few years. I was at the retreat in 2010 and by 2012, I was in the worst state of health I've ever been in. I was 350 pounds. Um, I had erectile dysfunction. Um, I had cuts on my legs that were infected and wouldn't heal like from scratching mosquito bites and stuff. I didn't understand why. I was peeing like every hour. I was drinking gallons of water. I just didn't understand what was going on. It felt like my body was just crumbling underneath me. And it hurt to live physically, spiritually, and emotionally. I was, I'd never been so completely disconnected from the experience of being alive in my entire life. And it felt like the world was like, we've had enough with you. It's time to get the fuck out of here. You're done. We don't want you anymore. And, um, I attempted suicide on August 21st of 2012 by drug overdose. And I can remember the experience of uh, overdosing. And while the physical pain was really difficult to deal with, it didn't last very long before I blacked out. But, you know, what was more painful was the feeling, like the, the visceral, emotional and psychological experience an existential experience of believing you're, 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 you're witnessing your last moments on earth. And my last moments on earth at that time were going to be alone in a filthy hoarders like apartment, completely disconnected from everyone and everything that ever mattered to me, not because they left me, but because I pushed them away. And um, that was the most terrifying experience I've ever had in my life. And at the time, I was willing to make that exchange. I was willing to say goodbye to all that thing because I thought my life was unlivable. And I thought that's why I was attempting suicide. 
But when I woke up on the floor in a puddle of my own vomit, in a pile of fast food garbage surrounded by empty pill bottles, I don't know, two, three hours later, I had this unbelievable feeling of relief. And that really surprised me because I thought, even though I was sad to lose all those meaningful things in my life, I wanted my life to be over and that's why I attempted suicide. And this feeling of, of relief that I had, that was like washing over my entire body, asked me to consider what was really taking place. And what was really taking place was that it wasn't an attempt to end my life, it was an attempt to end my pain. And that is so important as a distinction to make because that is the reason why everybody who's ever committed suicide, everyone who's ever attempted suicide, that is the attempt. It's not that they don't wanna be around anymore, it's just they do not know how to tolerate their pain anymore and they don't see a way out of it. And when the situation that you're in is the worst it's ever been, and you know that tomorrow is gonna to be worse, eventually that tomorrow will be impossible. And when you have no understanding of how to get out of it, when you offered yourself no opportunity to rediscover a relationship with suffering that isn't so overwhelming, you're gonna want it to end. And you're going to believe it's the right thing to do. And so I got up, I picked up the phone, I called my parents and I asked for help because even at that point, knowing that I didn't want my life to end, that even in spite of all the pain and suffering, I wanted to be a part of this world, I didn't, I didn't have enough self-love or I hadn't really learned enough self-love to want to do it for myself yet. But I told myself that I have a twin brother and a younger sister uh, who I'm really close with. And I didn't think it was fair for them to have to spend the rest of their lives asking themselves why their brother needed to eat and drug himself to death without at least making a real attempt to prevent it. And so I checked into rehab two weeks later and within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type two diabetes. My A1C was a 12 wow. high blood pressure. My blood pressure was 210 over 115 high cholesterol was over 300 um, bipolar disorder suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, ADHD. And I already knew that I had erectile dysfunction, but that went on the chart as well. And I was a cliche of rehab. Like I walked in high saying, all right, I'm gonna do 28 days. This is gonna be my real opportunity to get a handle on things. And I had plans with my dealers for when I got out. Like that was, you know, I was like the, the absolute cliche of rehab. And that whole idea of what my life was going to be like had been completely shattered by this doctor's diagnosis because more so, I had a greater risk of dying from these chronic diseases. It was much more of a threat than my drug use was. And I had, a, I had to accept the fact that if I wasn't willing to really change how I moved through the world, that I didn't have five years. And I had always bought into this bullshit belief that I was broken, that I came into this world uh, as a machine with broken parts. That's why I was overweight. That's why I had the depression as a kid. That's why I couldn't stop using the drugs. That's why all the things, right? And this doctor was asking me to accept that same bullshit story about my chronic illness. You're diabetic. It's a chronic disease. You, it's genetic. You're going to have it the rest of your life. You're going to end up being blind. You have heart disease. It's genetic. This is just who you are, your diabetic, your heart disease, you know, you're, you're bipolar, you're depressed, all these things. And I just was like, you know what? No, 
I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not buying into this belief that this is who and what I am and that this is simply an indication of me being this dealt this poor genetic hand. I had just spent seven days two years ago learning the exact opposite from, from the world's leading minds in preventative and uh, preventative medicine, that this is not true. They showed me countless research showing that it's completely reversible. And so they wanted to put me on this medication for life. They put me on like 13 medications. And I was like, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm going to reverse my diseases. I'm going to do this plant-based lifestyle. And I'll focus on the emotional stuff later because I certainly didn't know anything about bipolar disorder at the time. I mean, I knew I was depressed, but I didn't really have an understanding of what that meant. I just knew it was a term. Oh, you're depressed. Put you on antidepressants. But everything else was really trackable. It was very A plus B equals C. And that's what I needed at the time. And in rehab, I wasn't allowed to change my diet. The dietitians were not fans of a vegan lifestyle. They certainly didn't want me to do it, especially after my diagnosis of diabetes. They didn't want me eating a high carbohydrate mm -hmm. diet. So when I checked out of rehab, I spent 37 days in rehab, and then I moved to a sober living facility in California. And in this sober living facility, the residents there uh, write down on a list, a shopping list, what foods they want stocked for them at the house. So this is going to be my opportunity. And when I got there, the house had, was stocked with foods. It looked like it had been picked by teenagers who'd been watching nothing but Nickelodeon commercials. I mean, it was an absolute joke of food. I mean... Everything there was processed, or it was, it was fruity pebbles, it was Eggo waffles, microwavable pizzas, deli slices, more dairy than you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it was just string cheese all over the place. It was crazy. And I was like, man, I can't do this. I gotta, I've really got to write my own list and be very specific about this. And so I walked up to the house manager, and you can't make this shit up. I walked up to the house manager whose last name is Hamburger <laughs> and asked him if he would get me these plant-based foods. So I like to tell people, that my plant-based journey started with a hamburger. That's and, uh, <laughs> and at the time, I, you know, my goal was like, I'm not going to follow a plan. I'm just going to remember some of the things that I ate at the Engine 2 retreat that I liked and ask for those things. So it was oatmeal, it was black beans, it was broccoli, it was fruit. Uh, Engine 2 made this, makes this oil-free pasta sauce. And so I asked for that. That's basically what I, what I ate when I was there. And I got up every morning and I had this using this like recurring experience of going to the pantry and opening it up and seeing my oatmeal next to my, next to a box of fruity pebbles and just being like in this internal battle with myself of knowing what to do, knowing what choice to make and not wanting to make it and not knowing why this couldn't simply be a matter of intellect and will, why I couldn't just know what to do and want to do it. And then that was the end of the story. What was it about this situation that was making it so hard for me that I was literally crying every day that I was eating oatmeal? Like I had to, like, I was worked up to the point of tears and I had to force myself to make this decision because the pull, the compulsion to, to eat the fruity pebbles was so strong. And I didn't get it. Like I knew full well, if I ate the fruity pebbles, it was going to, it was going to create an opportunity for everything I didn't want to continue to happen. So why in the world would I want to make that choice? And then I watched a TED talk by Dr. Doug Lyle, who's an evolutionary psychologist called The Pleasure Trap, where I learned that there's a biological mechanism that compels us to seek out any behavior that creates a dopamine response high enough for our body to believe it's biologically beneficial. That throughout the course of human evolution, 
the experience of pleasure has always been an indication that whatever we have just done has increased our statistical likelihood of gene survival, right? It was biologically beneficial. And in that moment, like really grasping what he was saying was that, shit, every time I did 120 milligrams of Adderall at a time, every time I would eat two McDonald's cheeseburgers, knowing, logically knowing it was bad for me, my body, my psychology was responding Bravo, buddy. I don't know what that was, but holy crap, it's got to be the best thing you've ever done for yourself. We've never experienced a dopamine hit that high before. It has to be incredibly rare. If ever you have the opportunity to do it, keep doing it because our bodies have evolved. 99% of our evolution has evolved from an environment of scarcity. It doesn't understand that these foods, these substances are available ad libitum right outside of our door. It doesn't make that connection because we didn't evolve from the modern environment. So I, we're in a situation. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because a lot of people just don't understand. They're like, why can't you just stop doing drugs? Or why can't you just stop eating? But yeah. it's so much more than willpower. There's like a physiological uh, response in your body that's forcing you to do it. And it's not as simple as that. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's psychological and biological at the same time, right? There's a biological mechanism of, of compulsion. And compulsion is not the same thing as addiction but it's a real strong thing. I mean, it's a visceral experience. And I can remember like going in to the kitchen, opening up the pantry, and even if the Fruity Pebbles was on the other side of the cabinet, like looking at the oatmeal and then my eyes would just drift towards the Fruity Pebbles because that was the brain releasing dopamine going like, let's go over this way. Let's go towards the Fruity Pebbles. We know there's more calories per bite. We know there's high concentrations of salt, fat, and sugar. And an interesting thing is that never throughout the course of human evolution has there ever been a single food that contained all three dopamine triggers, salt, fat, and sugar at the same time. So when that occurs with every single thing that we eat today, our brain just lights up and we enter in this, into this state of neuroadaptation or habituation to where in order to experience pleasure from food on even a normal level, we have to eat those things. So that's why when people adopt a plant-based diet, the dopamine response, which used to register as a normal pleasure level, is now subnormal, lower. It feels like the wrong thing to do. And so I was able to approach the cabinet the next day, understanding that the reason why I was still going to want to choose the Fruity Pebbles wasn't because I was broken. It wasn't because I didn't have willpower or any sort of moral fiber, moral compass on what was the right thing to do for me. It was because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do given the way I had been living my life, the environment that I had created for myself. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me. In fact, it was an indication of my body working perfectly as predicted. And it removed a lot of the shame from me because it, it gave me this understanding that lifestyle change recovery in the beginning was, me, was going to be a daily practice of being comfortable being uncomfortable. Because eventually those dopamine receptors would reset. They would regain sensitivity and the oatmeal would give me just the right amount of pleasure it's supposed to have been giving me my entire life, which would make me enjoy it. Eventually I would get up and I would look forward to that choice. But in order to do that, I had to have a reason why I was willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And most people would look at me and go, oh, that's pretty, that's pretty easy. This guy's 350 pounds. He's got type 2 diabetes and heart disease. He's suffering from substance abuse and he nearly died from a suicide attempt. That has to be his why. And it's pretty common have people make negative consequences their why for wanting a positive result and i just i i absolutely call bullshit on the idea that people can hate their way out of a bad situation i tried for years to hate myself enough to hate my life enough to want to get to escape it 
And every time I hated myself more, I hated my life more, it made me need to escape it through drugs and disconnection, right? It was not a path to love. It was not a path to positive change. Negative consequences are never a motivation for positive action. They just aren't. And so I asked myself, okay, I, I'm 350 pounds. I don't want to be. I have diabetes and heart disease, and I don't want diabetes or heart disease. And I nearly died. And I learned from my suicide attempt that I actually didn't want to die. Why not? What was that meaningful bond? What was it about myself, my life that I loved enough that made me feel that immense amount of relief when I realized I hadn't been successful with my suicide attempt? What was it that I loved enough that I was going to be willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable so that I could reconnect to those meaningful bonds and experience it in a more authentic and more complete way than I have in most of my entire life? I wanted to love myself into a positive situation. I think that fear and hate and things like that, those, those uh, experiences are fantastic because they highlight for us a meaningful bond that's being threatened by negative consequences in our life, right? But the motivation is not the negative consequences, it's not the threat, it's what's being threatened. And so I made my food choices an act of self-care, an act of self-love. When I ate a bowl of oatmeal, it was like saying, today I choose this for myself. Not when I lose the weight, not when I reverse the disease, but in this moment, because I am now at this time and have been every moment of my life worthy of being, of, of giving myself this love and compassion. It was an affirmation of recovery. It was an affirmation of positive change. And within three months, my fasting blood glucose went from 390 to 70. I was on the highest amount of uh, oral medication, which was 2000 milligrams of metformin. I was experiencing several hypoglycemic events during the day, which is where your blood glucose goes below 70 and it feels, you feel sick, you feel dizzy, sweat. So I stopped taking the medication, went to go see my endocrinologist. And we had done blood work about a month prior. And he came in with my chart and he opens it up. And my A1C had gone from a 12 to a 5.5. Wow. And he goes, according to your chart, you're no longer diabetic. And... I what sat was, back and I, yeah, I was like, what was the feeling going through you right then? It was, it was a feeling of self-worth, which was, which was really, a, 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 um, had become an unfamiliar thing for me. Uh, it made me feel like for the first time that I was worth everything I was getting. And I looked at him and I stood up and I shook his hand and I said, according to your charts, I no longer need your services. And so <laughs> I walked out. And what, what had happened became a lesson that helped me really have this amazing emotional recovery at the same time. Um, because so I at, told myself. At, at this point, how yeah. much did you weigh now? Because how much weight had you lost? Honestly, I think I had lost probably 40 pounds so, in okay, three months. Not a whole lot just yet compared to how much yeah. you ended up losing in total. Exactly. I think it was like 40, 50 pounds by three months. I wasn't really weighing myself very much at the time because I didn't want it to be about an end goal. Like my goal at the time was to fall in love with behaviors that were allowing me to show up in the best way possible to create positive change for myself. Cause I knew that if I could just make loving uh, connection with this lifestyle, that the results would take care of themselves. I, I allowed myself to, to firmly hold the belief that the science was right. right and not worry about when it happened. Just know that it would happen as long as I, fell in love and connected to the lifestyle that made it happen and made it possible. And after reversing the diagnosis, you know, it was like confirmation of that belief that all the stories I'd been told about my health that I've been told about myself were bullshit. Right. 
that the only reason why I had reversed my diabetes and my heart disease and my erectile dysfunction within four months was because I had always been capable of it was because there has never been anything wrong with me. The environment that I was living in was creating a, was a perfect uh, uh, environment for creating this metabolic state that more so than a disease, it's really just a metabolic response to how I've been living my life. That the reason why I had diabetes and heart disease was because that is exactly what's supposed to happen when you live the life I was living. My body was fine. It was doing exactly as predicted. It was, it was a signal. It was my, my healthy body saying, look at what's happening here. We're doing this for your benefit because if you keep doing this, it's going to get worse. And it made me realize that I've always been enough. I'd always been everything I've ever needed to be my own, to own my health and well-being. What if it's the same thing for my emotional health? What if it's the same thing for my emotional and psychological recovery? Because at the time, I would get up every single day and I would be four months sober, right? Which is just a term for not using. I don't like to, to lump sobriety and recovery into the same category. Um, but I would have temptations and urges and cravings constantly for food and drugs. And I would talk to my therapist like, I don't get this, okay? I'm losing weight, I've reversed these diseases, I'm sober. You know, I'm still having temptations and urges and cravings and anger and fear and anxiety and resentment. Like, why am I failing? And he asked me this question. He goes, is it possible that you're having these feelings because you're succeeding? And in that moment, I asked myself, is it possible to be human and not experience temptations, urges and cravings, fear, anxiety, resentment, anger to any degree? And the answer is no, it's not. Those are reasonable responses to life. Is it possible to be human, to live my life where I experience those things and be okay with it, to see them as equally valid, equally human, and equally meaningful as joy and love and excitement and uh, th that feeling of, of control or, or of acceptance of a new life? These are the, the breadth of human emotion is not good or bad. They're signals. They're highly evolved signals that arise in us to tell us something meaningful about what either something that is happening or has happened in the past that is being triggered in this moment, right? They simply are. They're not my enemy. They are a companion for me every single day at all times in my life. My willingness to see some of them as indications of failure, resist them and fight them made my life harder. But in the choice to observe them as a companion and a guide to gaining a greater understanding of how I show up for myself with love and compassion and move through the world in a more positive way allowed me to have this amazing new relationship with myself where I no longer viewed myself as being broken or doing something wrong for feeling sad. But rather as, oh, this makes sense, right? I'm four months sober from a 15-year substance abuse problem. If I wasn't having temptations and cravings, that would be a bit odd, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It makes complete sense. Why would I be angry at myself for having a reasonable response to what's going on in my life? And so over the course of the next 10 months, I lost about 120, 130 pounds. And then within one year, I was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, including the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, and the ADHD medications. That's and so there's powerful. this... There's this, you know, interesting belief system that I, I came I came to adopt, and that is 
in every single moment when my feelings that were rising, when my past experiences asked me to believe that it was an indication of something wrong with me, I would remind myself that I don't feel because I'm broken. I feel because I'm whole. And this experience makes sense to some degree. And if I have to sit with it, I'll sit with it. And if I can figure it out, great. If I can't, it's also fine. To be in that moment, be present with it, observe it and not be the unwilling participant. And I learned that because food was this vehicle that allowed me to clearly understand that I've never been broken, that allowed me to reconnect to my body in a loving way to where I wasn't trying to have the body I thought I needed to have to accept it, but rather giving it what it needs so that I could love the things it does for me. Like it was the most unbelievable practice of remembering who I've always been before the world taught me differently. Right? We all come into this world open and accepting of ourselves, the world around us, the animals that we share this world with, and then we're taught at some point. Somebody at some time in our early years tells us we have to look a certain way. We have to act a certain way. That animals are animals until they reach a certain age, then they're food. And at some point, we believe that bullshit story, and that's where the disconnection happens. And so recovery and lifestyle change is not a transformation to someone new. It's a practice in remembering what we used to know to be true. And then we believe somebody else's story. And food was that amazing way for me to reconnect to all of those things. And I've lost about 180 pounds as of today. And what's interesting is that I wanted to understand the research because I said, oh, great. Well, I knew that there was research that said about physical health recovery. So where's the research on the mental health recovery? There's none. There's never been a single randomized or controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. Never, which is such a shame because you go into any treatment center today and they'll stress the importance of nutrition, but they'll feed you like crap. They'll tell you like, you know, omega-3s for your brain health. They'll tell you all these things and they couldn't, they can't cite a single study. They can just, they can point to, you know, oh, it improves brain function, but that's, that's, that's a big correlation to make, to, to call causation. You know, and uh, so that's why I started my nonprofit. Um, and as of January of this year, we started running what's called the Infinite Study, and we call it the Infinite Study because the treatment center is called Infinite Recovery. Um, and it is a controlled trial investigating the effects of dietary protocol, the treatment diet being a plant-based diet, the control diet being the diet that they serve there, which is just an elevated Western diet. It's meat, eggs, dairy. It's just not a lot of processed food. Um, looking at microbiome changes looking at changes in various blood biomarkers and how those changes relate to changes in validated scales of measuring anxiety, depression, self-compassion, resiliency, spiritual healing, eating disorder, and obsessive compulsive drug use. And I have just the most incredible team. Uh, so my lead investigator is uh, a woman named Tara Kemp. Um, I, I don't know if you all are familiar with Tara. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the doctors are Dean and Aisha Sherzai. Oh, amazing. Who, <laughs> <Wow>. Yeah. <laughs> we love so, them. <laughs> so they're the world's leading neuroscientists on the effects of cognitive longevity and lifestyle. So how lifestyle affects cognitive longevity and the reversal and prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia, essentially the preservation of cognitive longevity. And um, Dr. Frank Cusimano is our microbiome specialist. Nice. And uh, we, uh, I'll just say this, we, we, it's been running for six months. We have preliminary results mm -hmm. and we're not shocked. That's what I'll say. <laughs> That's all we can know for now. <laughs> yeah. Super cool though. I love yeah. it. I love your story. It's so powerful. Every bit of it. But I do have a few follow-up questions. Sure. Um, 
So I'm just going to go back to when you said you lost the initial 40 pounds, I believe. So I'm yeah. guessing you probably weighed like still high 200s, maybe low 300. Not yeah, sure. so probably around the 300 mark at that point. Yeah. yeah. So you were you were at that point still quite overweight, but yet you were able to reverse type 2 diabetes and heart disease, which mm -hmm. is powerful because a lot of people just think that because I just wanted to point that out so people don't just attribute those two reversals just to you losing weight because you were still overweight. The fact yeah. that you change your diet to a plant-based diet played a huge role. And yes. we have discussed this in the previous episodes as well, that there's a lot of research supporting exactly what you said. Yeah, exactly. That weight loss, while is a huge factor, right? Visceral fat is a, is a huge impact on your insulin resistance. But the biggest contributing factor is the dietary fat content of your diet, right? Like how much fat are you eating at every single meal? And so the reversal of insulin resistance, the gaining of insulin sensitivity can be quite rapid even before the weight loss completes itself, right? right? So I gained more insulin sensitivity over the course of time. And it's true, right? During those three months, I, that was also medicated, right? So the A1C value could have gone up a little bit, but then back down, my latest A1C is 4.9. So, um, so that was, that was based on a medicated time. But the thing is, I maintained a non-diabetic state since then. And well, so- Carbs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All day, y'all. <laughs> um, I would like to just say thank you so much for, again, sharing your story. It's incredible. And thank you for being so vulnerable and open with our listeners. I know everyone will really appreciate it. Um, I pleasure. just have one question. Um, so when you first got out of rehab and you were dealing, obviously, with these um, desires and cravings to use Adderall, let alone to eat the fruity pebbles in the cupboard. Can you just yeah. touch on how perhaps, like, I find it fascinating that you were able to focus so much on choosing the oatmeal when you had all these other cravings and addictions going on at the same time. So how was it that focusing on plant-based eating perhaps helped you get you through those, like, those really hard times when I feel like a lot of other people in early recovery would be reaching for their drug of choice? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a practice of mindfulness. I did a lot of, so when, when I first got into recovery, they asked me to do something called a 90 and 90, which is where you go to 90 AA meetings in 90 days. I went to about 10 of them and I was at, like, I just, I didn't connect mm -hmm. with the AA model. The AA model asked me to identify myself by what I struggle with, right? And I just, I've never been okay with that. I've never been okay with defining myself as an alcoholic. I don't think anybody uh, is an addict. I think addiction is a reasonable response to a painful experience. Um, and so, in the same way, I practice that mindfulness with my food, right? And, and I do recognize the profound impact that my suicide attempt had on my willingness to be okay with being suffered, with suffering in those moments, right? I recognize that. But at the same time, I told myself, what a gift. What a gift it is for me to have this experience, for my body to be saying to me, you know what? You, because I had been sold this idea that I'd been killing myself, right? That's what people tell you. You're killing yourself, you know, but I changed that narrative to where my, I was telling myself, I had been going through this for 15 years and my body never stopped fighting for me. It never gave up on me. What if I was willing to show my body gratitude for allowing me to survive all of the stuff that I went through and be incredibly uncomfortable knowing that it's a fleeting experience. It'll be over soon. It's not permanent. Let it happen because I know at the end of the day, what I want most 
is to be able to make the decisions that create the life that I want to live and create the opportunity for me to show up as I want. You know, they say discipline is simply a choice between what you want now and what you want most. And I would be willing to sit in it. And like, look, it's, it sounds like from me telling the story because we only have an hour that like I, I wanted to do it and I did it. There's a lot that went on in there. Of course. Of me, of me throwing fits and like yelling at people and storming out of the, the sober living house and just like going for a walk on the beach and, and being really mad at the universe. And you know what the great thing about the universe is that it doesn't care how mad you get at it. Right. It doesn't matter. It'll take all the blame in the world because the, the universe, the world has always wanted me to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I gladly made this relationship with it. And, you know, um, I told myself that substances had always been my way of disconnecting and my goal was to reconnect. And so I had a choice to use substances in the same way to reconnect to that meaningful life. And, you know, it's like we've been sold this idea that drugs are a gateway to other drugs, right? And it's just, there's no such thing as gateway drugs. There's gateway pain, right? You know, I didn't become dependent upon Adderall and opiates because I smoked marijuana in high school. That's an insult to what matters most in life. It's an insult to love and connection. Because the reason why I was in pain is because I was disconnected from love and connection. You know, I became dependent on Adderall because I believed it made me the person I was supposed to be. I had false beliefs of how I was supposed to show up in this world and feel acceptable. And I had shame about it because I didn't know that it was okay for me to ask people for help. I didn't know that it was okay for me to not know these things. And so I just wanted to feel acceptable to the rest of the world in hopes that eventually it would allow me to accept myself. So I was trying to hide the parts of myself that I was ashamed of. And because of that shame, I was in pain. And I wanted to stop using because I... I stopped using because I learned to love the parts of myself that needed it the most. I learned how to listen to what my shame and my pain needed of me so that I could return and connect to that truest self that had been silenced for so long and then just love the shit out of him. Like, that's what it was about. It was like, I'm willing to have this moment of suffering so that I can have a, an experience of living that is meaningfully connected and, and, and truly, uh, a connection of love. That's what it comes down to. Like when you ask people their why, they'll tell you something negative. Oh, why are you, why are you eating a plant-based diet? Because I want to reverse diabetes. It's not why you're doing it. Why don't you want diabetes? Because I don't want to go blind and I don't want to lose my legs. Why don't you want to go blind? And why don't, want, why don't you want to lose your legs? Because I don't want my kids. No, no, no. Why don't you want your kids to take care of you? Because I love my kids and I love myself and I love my life. There it is. Every time you investigate it, the further you get down, the answer is love. So how was I able to do it? Because I was willing to tell myself I was worth it and that, and that, and that I was going to show myself love. That's what it is. Love and that. if you have to cry, if you have to get angry, if you have to, be, if you have to punch the wall, do it. Wear a boxing gloves so you don't break your hand. But do it. It's worth it. It's a fleeting moment in time that allows you to connect to a lifetime of, of, of connection. I love it. I love your message of self-love. It's so powerful and so important. Um, I think it'd be really good to end on a note about love. You talked a lot about self-love and that is super important, super crucial. Um, Could you, I know you don't have as much time, so could you just briefly just talk about the evolution of your relationship with your family in this entire process? Because you didn't just learn yourself, but you also like developed a stronger bond with your family during these times. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in the last eight years, I've, I've been in recovery for eight years. Um, 
before that, I was completely angry at every single one of my family members. Said that they were the problem and that's why I couldn't connect to them. And the only person, the one person who's made the biggest change in the last eight years is me. And as a result of it, I have the most incredible connection that I've ever had with my family. And it's funny because I always thought that my goal was to, was to create an opportunity where I could get the love that I needed from them when I was a kid, right? Like to be able to finally have that inner child receive the love it needed. But what was amazing was that I got more healing out of being able to be the person that could go back and give them love that they want, the connection that they want, and be that person that can say, I see you, I understand why. I understand why you weren't able to show love to me in the way that I needed. And I don't, and I don't need it right now. I can be with you, give you everything you need, and have that be everything I need for me. Because that's what it's about, it's this shared connection. And as a result, my my parents are both 100% whole food plant-based. They're also vegan activists. My sister has gone vegan last year. Uh, my twin brother went vegan in 2016 uh, because he was type 2 diabetic and 280 pounds. And in six weeks, he reversed his diabetes. He lost like 50 pounds in three months. He lost 100 pounds today. And now he's the organizer for LA Animal Save that does the, the pig vigils in Vernon, California, the one that Walking Phoenix, you know, you saw all the footage of him doing it. Uh, he's a cinematographer and producer with Sean Munson, the director of Earthlings, and they're making the next film. Um, and uh, it's been it's been an amazing uh, experience to go through all of it. And uh, you know, when it comes to, to to being connected to people, there's no greater thing than love, and you have to be willing to love unconditionally, right? It cannot be dependent upon something, and that's why I see a lot of issue with like the intervention model right? The intervention model of recovery. The intervention model says, we love you if, we accept you if, right? So people are experiencing incredible uh, state of disconnection, severed from meaningful bonds. And then an intervention takes the last lingering meaningful bond and then it threatens it. And so I've lost 10 friends to suicide and overdose since getting into recovery. Uh, many of them were very, very close friends of mine. And I, I know that that, that um, their choice to end their life on the ones that actually attempted suicide. Uh, and the reason why some of them overdosed and died is because they bought into this belief that what they are, they will always be. And that life is going to be a constant battle of trying to refuse those behaviors, to abstain from that who you are, apparently. You have to not be you because you are the addict. And that just becomes more and more difficult because days can get harder, months can become harder before they get better. And I just want to say, I say this every time to people who are listening, if you know someone who's struggling, I think most of us do. And it doesn't have to be a, to a degree where you honestly believe your friend is, or loved one is going to commit suicide. It can just be someone who seems like they're in pain. Is to go to them. And I get this from a guy named Johan Hari who wrote a book called Lost Connections. And you go to these people that you love and you say, I want to deepen my connection with you. I love you. Whether you're using or you're not. I love you, whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I will sit with you because I don't want you to be alone or feel alone. That is the greatest gift you can give somebody who's suffering because people in that kind of pain feel like they've been forgotten by the world. And when you remind them that not only have they not been forgotten, but that they matter, that they matter to you, it can be the moment when they say, please stay with me because I don't know how to do this. And it's, it's, it's just the greatest gift that you can give somebody. Thank you. That's 
That's amazing. I think that's a beautiful point to leave it on. Um, I know we want to be super respectful of your time. Uh, we do have three questions we like to ask sure. our guests at the end. Do you have time for that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, great. Okay. Our first question, what is your favorite plant-based meal? Oh, that's that's easy. It's sweet potato, <laughs> sweet potato oatmeal. So I bake a Japanese sweet potato and I mash it into my oatmeal and then I top it with cinnamon. It's the best. I have never had that, but I'm going to oh, make it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Sounds Super delicious. Cool. Okay. Second question. What is one kitchen item you wouldn't be able to live without? Uh, I guess lately it's been my air fryer hmm. because I love uh, uh, air fried sweet potatoes, but I, I, you know, it's funny. I don't really go in for the whole gadget thing. Like, I mean, I guess it would just be like a pot. Like if I don't have a pot mm -hmm. to boil stuff in, that would be my biggest, biggest issue. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> and then our last question here. Um, you've already left our listeners with so much to kind of take away from this episode. But if you could, if there's anything else that you would just like to say, if you could leave one piece of advice for maybe someone that is struggling, be it with a drug addiction or a food addiction, what would that be? Yeah. Um, there's two things I'd like to say for people who are struggling, if you're struggling with drug addiction, if you're struggling with uh, substance abuse or depression or anxiety, one thing I think is, you know, reach out and ask and ask someone for help, right? It's, it's not, it's not a weakness. Uh, you're not broken. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you more than likely the pain that you're experiencing makes sense. Right? You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need most is someone who is willing to listen to your needs, not to what's wrong with you, but to what matters to you. And so finding someone who's willing to do that is really important, but you can make a call. There are resources out there that cost nothing for you to talk to somebody. And, you know, it's worth it. I know that it hurts right now, the, the experience you're going through, but I'm telling you, I cannot believe that I nearly ended my life before the best part of it even started. And I know that that is possible for every single person who's struggling right now. And for everyone else, uh, I've been trying to honor my friend David Clark as much as possible lately. David Clark is an amazing plant-based ultra runner who passed away from complications due to surgery late, uh, recently. Um, and he had this really great thing that he used to say. We've all heard the, 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 the saying that if you want to be happy, live like it's the last day of your life. You, know, you guys have both heard that. Mm -hmm. And he says that doesn't really work. That if you really want to be happy, you should treat other people like they're living the last day of theirs. Wow. And um, so I'm giving that advice out every time I have an opportunity. And that comes from David Clark. So thank him for that. Thank you. That's an amazing, yeah. I've never even thought about it like that. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, so imagine what you, like you can, yeah. Go ahead, I mean, imagine, imagine what it would be like, I mean, what, what that would create for you, the willingness you would have for other people to allow other people's experiences to just be okay. Right. You don't have to agree with it, but you can love them anyways. It would change the world. Yeah. So if our listeners would like to connect with you, where can they find mm -hmm. you? Do you have a website, social media? Yeah. So my nonprofit website is plantbasedforpositivechange.org. Um, my Instagram is plantbasedaddict. And then my Facebook page is plantbasedaddict. So you can find me both there. We'll put them in the show notes. Thank you well, so thank much. You so, yeah. Thank you so much, Adam. This was an amazing episode. Um, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so my much. My pleasure. Me. Oh, no, I'm, I'm grateful to do this. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Plant Prescription Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it, and hopefully this inspires you to take steps towards making changes so you live a longer, happier, and healthier life. You can also follow us on Instagram, where we share nutrition, health, and fitness content, along with recipes. Our Instagram handles can be found in the description of this episode. 
please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss on any upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this, we would love it if you left us a positive review and a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to share this with any family or friends who may benefit. Thank you so much for listening. Also, be sure to eat plenty of plants and see you next week.